All right, well, we are going to turn once again to 2 Timothy. Uh, if you have a, a Bible, uh, it's great to turn there. If ever you come and you're, you would like a Bible, we have some just on the tables as you, as you walk in. You're welcome to use those and even take them with you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, we've been in 2 Timothy for a little while. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. Uh, the question is this. Uh, how important do you think a, a good moral character is for uh, good performance in a job. For example, uh, would it bother you if you knew uh, that the pilot of the plane you're in uh, was cheating on his wife? Would, would, that, would you have any hesitation getting on the plane if you knew that there was some moral corruption in the person driving the plane? Uh, what about your dentist? What if you knew that your dentist, she was making false billing claims, right? she was stealing money, would you, would you get your root canal done? Would, is there a connection in your mind between the moral character of that person and the job that they have to do? What about other jobs? Right? For a pilot, you might think, well, I don't know, He'd probably keep the plane in the air, I mean, if he's corrupt and a horrible husband. But there are other jobs that we would, we would have, I think, more hesitation, right? Jobs like teachers, counselors, politicians. These are professions that when there's moral corruption, we have, we have great hesitancy. All of a sudden, we question whether they can do their job, whether they can be effective. And of course, when it comes to the church, when it comes to positions of, of leadership or, or things, jobs that we have to do, moral character in the church is, is everything, right? We would rightly hesitate being part of a small group if we knew that there was some sort of moral corruption in, in the leaders there or in the pastors of a church, certainly. I bring this up because this, this is really what Paul is going to be talking about today. In all his final words to Timothy, here he's going to speak about the importance of, of good moral character when it comes to actually being effective for the job that God has, has called us to do, for all of us in the church. So with that as set up, let's, let's look to our passage. I think you're going to see the connections. Uh, Paul begins with a metaphor of a house and some vessels, and we'll go on to explain it. But I'm going to read uh, all the way just to verse uh, 26. So here's God's word to us this morning. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's God's words to us this morning, and uh, we have three points to help walk us through it, and the first one is this. It's possible to be saved, but not be very useful. That's the first point, which I think we see right away here. It's possible to be saved, to be a Christian, but not actually to be very useful, for, for, for the things of God. And where do I see that? Why, why do I say it that way? Well, look again at verse 20. Now in a great house. So the house here is the church. That's what Paul's been talking about to Timothy. He's talking about all aspects of the church. That there's a house, but in the house there are vessels and these are the people. 
And you'll notice there are some people, some vessels that are honorable and useful and others that are dishonorable and not very useful. Um, there's some discussion about this distinction, about what it means to be useful. There's some that would say, look, what Paul is talking about here is that in a, in a, f- a community of faith, there are some that are not actually saved. That there, there are people who come and participate in church life, but they're not actually genuinely saved. And that is a distinction that uh, you find in the Bible. Uh, Jesus speaks about kind of uh, the the family of God. He speaks about those who are sheep and those who are goats. Makes a distinction metaphorically of those who are truly following the Lord and those who are not. Also, you have the parable of the the wheat and the tares of the the weeds. That within kind of the, the harvest of the church, there are those that don't actually belong. That is a distinction that is made, but I don't think that's the distinction being made here. And that's because all of these vessels, they actually... Uh, do have some use. They're useful to some degree. There's the, the wood and clay, which are not, you know, you can picture those as like uh, the chamber pots or, you know, like the really gross bowl you have on your counter for the green bin. It's all gross and goopy like that. You wouldn't use that when a company comes over for salad, right? You wouldn't, it's gross, it's disgusting. It has some use, but it's, it's not really very honorable or useful, uh, when, when company comes over, you use your, your gold and silver place settings, right? We all have solid gold place settings. We bring them out. Uh, we have like the non-chipped dishes that are for, for the guests. Um, but the idea is you, we, we know the difference, right? There are things in the home that are useful. They all belong to the home, but there's, there's a distinction. That's, that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, I was reading John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, on this issue, and I thought he articulated it well, and in fact tied this distinction back to some of the other, other metaphors. Remember, he was speaking about the farmer, the athlete, uh, the, the other one I forget now, but anyway, he's going to, here, here's what, uh, one of his quotes, I think this is helpful. Uh, he says, the honorable vessels represent believers who are faithful and useful to the Lord. They are the good soldiers, that's it, competitive athletes, hardworking farmers mentioned in verses 3 to 6. By contrast, the dishonorable vessels are the cowardly soldiers, the lazy athletes, the slothful farmers, defiled people fit only for the most menial and undistinguished purposes. And so what it's saying here is that it's possible to be a Christian, but to not actually be very useful for the things of God. And we've been talking a lot about what is the job that we have to do within the church. Uh, that job is discipleship. That, that job is, is making Jesus known to, to each other and to those outside of, of the church. And what we're seeing here is that it's possible to be part of the church and not actually be very useful for those things. And as I reflect on my life, I, I can see this very clearly, especially early on in my journey of faith. In my late teen years, early 20s, I was a Christian I could articulate the gospel. I knew that Jesus saved me. I knew I was a sinner. But I was not very useful for the Lord. And it's not just because I was new to the faith. It's not just because I didn't know my Bible very well. That was part of it. But the bigger, the bigger issue was that I was, I was not clean. Was that there was sin in my life that had, that had not been dealt with. There was issues of pride, issues of lust, issues of, of self-pity and self-involvement. Uh, certainly issues of self-reliance. And, and so interestingly, if you know my story, I actually I got a job at the church in my early 20s. I was working in children's ministry, working in day camps. From the outside looking in, you, you would have looked at me and say, boy, there's someone, there's a young guy who's really doing a lot of good. He's really, he's being useful. He's, he's writing curriculum. He's helping kids more about Jesus. He's doing all these things. But, but 
I knew in some deeper part, I, I didn't really know how to kind of tease it out, but I could see that I was doing that in my own strength. And the difference is that while I was accomplishing certain practical things, I didn't have the spiritual depth or insight or, or understanding of how to actually lead people to know Christ more. And so I was, I was doing some things. That's, that's the, the challenge here. It's possible to be saved, to even be, you could add to that, to, to be doing some stuff but not actually be very useful, spiritually speaking. Makes me think of, uh, Don and I had uh, one of our first cars when we were married was this uh, old red Tercel. And uh, this, this Tercel, after a while, it was running really rough and, you know, it would stall out and it would not. So I went to the, my mechanic and I said, what's going on? He said, well, you've only got like maybe two cylinders that are working. you like, the, the engine is shot. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, uh, what should I do? He's like, well, you need to get a new car. I said, well, I can't do that right now. I said, can I drive it? He said, yeah, it's just going to be, it's really going to be rough. And it was. So I kept driving this car, but we had to, we had to keep it in the garage because in cold weather, it wouldn't start up. At a red light, I had to put it in neutral and keep my foot on the gas just to keep things going. Like, it was, it was rough. And I knew driving this car, look, this is, this is going to be rough. I don't take it long distances. And there's a pretty good chance it's going to break down. That, that, I think, aptly described, would have described my life back then, spiritually speaking. It was pretty rough. There were certainly big areas in my life where I was not honoring the Lord. There were some good things sort of I was doing, but at any given moment, there was going to be a moral failing because, because I was not right with the Lord. Because I was, I was, I was saved, but I was, I was not clean. I was not useful. And, and that, that can be the case for people in the church for extended period of, periods of time. That was me for years. So what, what do we do? Right? If this is possible... And I hope right now, for all of us, we're kind of just doing a little bit of self-examination. Is it possible? There's even areas of my life where I'm not really useful the way I should be. Uh, what, what do we do? What, what hope, what instructions are we given? And uh, we'll move to our second point, which is, which is pretty clear in the text. To be useful. To be useful for the things of God, for, for the job that he has for us, we need to be clean. We need to be pure. We need to be holy. And we see this in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, just to be clear, um, when it says cleanses himself or cleanses herself, this doesn't mean, of course, that we save ourselves. Uh, We've seen this very clearly in the letter already. Remember, they'd read the letter sort of as a whole. So we're jumping through it in weeks, but if you look a few weeks back, we saw really clearly God is sovereign in our salvation. He is the one who saves. It's his power, his spiritual strength that actually makes us alive. So this isn't saying we need to save ourselves, but it is saying that we need to cleanse ourselves. What does that mean? It means that when God does a significant spiritual work in our hearts to bring us from death to life spiritually, it means that we will respond. We're going to react. We're going to do something. And the thing, this is actually the thing we usually see, because we can't see the, the regenerative work of the Spirit, but we can see people repent. We can see people express faith. And so what this is talking about, cleansing themselves, this is the, the life of a Christian, that we have been saved, we've been justified, right? No one can take that away from us, but the life of a Christian is one of seeing sin, right? Realizing maybe an area of sin that I didn't see before, and then what? We repent, we confess it. And repentance, if you want a visual of it, it is, it is turning, right? You're going in one direction, one area of your life, sinful direction. You see it, right? It grieves you. By God's power, you can see it. Then you turn and you, you go towards 
the Lord. You go towards holiness. You go towards the, the good things. Uh, and this comes out as a desire for cleanness. King David, right, famously, after his sin is expo- exposed, Psalm 5110, the whole psalm is this, but, but this line sort of is the famous one. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He's, he's speaking out of a spiritual renewal that comes by the power of God, but he's saying it. He wants it. Right? He's, saying, he's cleansing himself in that he is, he's pursuing the Lord. And, and we see this in our text uh, with sort of two different commands. Right? That, look at verse 22. So we're, we're to cleanse ourselves. Verse 22 sort of gives us some details. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a, a pure heart. So you have this dual kind of um, instruction, which is two sides of the same coin. Fleeing bad, harmful, sinful, destructive things and pursuing godly things is talking about one direction, right? Turning away and going in the other direction, but you need, but you need both. If, if you look at the, the list there, we'll actually flee youthful passions. He doesn't give us a list, but I... I think it's probably because he knows those things that would come to mind. It's a lot of things I described in myself, right? When we are, when we are young and immature, we tend to get caught up in things that are destructive, that, that are more immediately gratifying, which is what sin uh, does, how it ensnares us. The, the, the lie is this, this feels good, this is good. And so we pursue, we pursue those things in, in our youthful passions. But Paul is saying is we need, to, we need to actually flee those things. We need to recognize uh, those kinds of sinful, idolatrous habits, whatever they may be. They, they are going to only bring destruction and they're going to hinder our usefulness. We need to flee selfish ambition, flee pride, flee lust, flee greed, all of those things that, that really can grab a hold of our hearts, especially when we are young. But it's not enough just to flee. We need to then pursue the things of God. And so this, I think, is helpful. Like uh, Kent Hughes said it this way in one of the commentaries. He said, what we learn here is that our, our no is just as important as our yes, which I thought was, was helpful because as I think back to those times in my lives where I was uh, unclean and wasn't very useful, I, at those times, I was actually trying to add a lot of good things. I was saying yes to the things that I thought were good. I was, I was trying to read my Bible more, trying to pray more. I was serving in the church. These are all good things, and they were good, but the problem is I wasn't saying no to the unholy things. I, I wasn't doing the hard work of, of examining and, and identifying tendencies towards sin, and so even though I was adding on yes, yes to the good things, I was still not useful because I, I wasn't rooting out the sin that was that was corrupting my mind, that was keeping me uh, shallow spiritually. A friend of mine uh, worked in an auto body shop for a long time, and he, and he said, with, with rust, uh, you, you have to, there's only one way to deal with rust. He said, some people, you, you, you sand it over, right? You give it a new coat of paint, it looks great. He said, it's, the rust is always going to come back. The only way to really deal with rust, he said, you got to cut it out. you got to cut it out, you got to put more metal on, you gotta, then, then you paint it, then it's okay. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You need to flee the things that are corrupting your mind and heart. Uh, the, the, the patterns of life, the things that you're involved in that are, that are grabbing hold of you. You're never going to actually be able to say yes, truly, to the best that God has for you or, or for me if we're still ensnared by these other things. So it's, it's both. 
It's fleeing and it's, it's pursuing. And when we do that, there's a cleansing that happens. And it makes us actually ready for good works. And this, I think, is, is kind of what I want to spend a good portion of our time thinking about. What, is, what does it actually mean to be useful? Like, what is Paul calling us to here? How is it that we can be active in the church? Like teaching Sunday school. This is me. Teaching Sunday week in, week out, and yet not actually be useful. I mean, there's a superficial usefulness that was there. Kids were coming. It was, it was good. There's some good. But, but actually, the thing that God has called us to is not a superficial spirituality, just, just helping kids memorize verses or, or in our community group, not just kind of being present and praying for someone who's sick. It's, it's actually being able to lead people in the ways of God. Like actually saying to someone, you know, I, I want to I walk with you on this journey. I, I see some struggle. Maybe it's, maybe it's just trials, whatever it is in life, but, but as you get to know people, to have the, the capacity to discern spiritual need and, and to help with that. That's discipleship. So the last part of our text, uh, Paul gives us uh, some marks of a useful life. Some things that, that if they were true of us would help us to really to lead people effectively in the ways of God. So we're going to look at those for kind of the, the last thing. There's three of them and it happens to be point three. So it's great. Three marks of a useful life. And the first one we see is this. Uh, a discerning mind. And that's in verse 23. So he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So this uh, is interesting. Uh, last week, we talked about, uh, he, he, he warned us against uh, quarreling about words, right? There's instructions a lot. Look, don't, don't get into fights. Don't nitpick, all that. And it sort of seems like this is like a throwback, right? Like, a call, oh, this is what he's talking about again, which, which is true. He's saying, right, you, you shouldn't, have these kinds of quarrels, but actually I think what this verse is about is, is that we need to be able to tell the difference between foolish controversies and other kinds of controversies or arguments that we should get into. That, that's really what, he's, what is necessary, right? If he's saying have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know they breed quarrels. Well, first of all, you need to know that and you need to be able to identify well, what is a foolish controversy and that requires discernment. Just think of, uh, I think of it like a spectrum, right? Think of all the kind of um, arguments or discussions or, or debates, something you might discuss with someone. On one end, there are the obviously foolish, ignorant controversies. Uh, gossip, right? Someone's talking about what someone else did or said uh, in community groups. Someone's uh, talking badly about someone else, obviously in sin. It's, it's foolish. It's, you should, we should not be a part of that. That's fairly obvious. But there are some other ones that are maybe a little less obvious. There are some theological debates that we could put in that category. Uh, for example, if you know this word, the Nephilim, okay, in the Old Testament, it's these beings that no one quite knows who or what they are. Are they angels that came and, you know, married humans? Are they, are they aliens? There's all sorts of crazy uh, explanations. The, the reality is the Bible does not make clear who or, or what they are. And yet there are some who are very captivated with the Nephilim and will readily get into, you know, heated debate and here's why I think this. And, and that would be in the category of, of look, I'm not going to passionately debate or get into a controversy about that. It's, it's foolish. Not that it's not maybe important on some level, but it's so far down, you know, the ladder that this isn't something we should, we should get into conflict about. It requires discernment to be able to tell the difference between that and let's go to the other end of the spectrum. 
um, someone adding to the gospel. This was a big problem in the early church, right? Jesus came, died for our sins. He is the one. If you have faith in him, you are made clean, right? That's all you need. But also, uh, you should be circumcised. Or also, you should, you know, make sure you keep to the Jewish dietary laws. This is what people were saying back in the time of Jesus. Because they, they weren't clear yet on the truth that actually Jesus is all you need. That wasn't a foolish, ignorant controversy you know, causing an unnecessary quarrel in the church. That was, a, that was a real debate that needed to happen because it was, it was essential for people's souls that they realize actually you don't need anything else. It's now a covenant of grace, not works. And there are things like that in the church. There are false gospels. People speaking untruths, twisting the gospel, people denying certain doctrines. Anyone who comes and says, Jesus you know, was just a prophet rather than God himself. That's something, that's not a foolish controversy. We need to talk about that. But the point is, how do you, how do you know the difference? Because in between those two more obvious things, there's a lot of other issues that you're like, I'm not quite sure. How do we know? We need a discerning mind. And how do we get a discerning mind? We need a mind that is not conformed to the world, but transformed by the word and the spirit of God. And so here's Hebrews 4, just speaking about the, the importance of the Bible, of, what, of its power and what it can do. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The only way that we are going to be useful for the things of God is if we have a mind that has been transformed by the word of God. Because then we also will have the ability to discern, to figure out, right, this, this controversy. Because it's, it's sometimes hard to tell. Someone's very upset. Someone's, there's some, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a social dynamic. and You're trying to help figure out what, what exactly is going on. Why is there turmoil in, in my friend group? What, we, need, we need the word of God to help us to kind of slice through what is unnecessary and what is necessary. If we can do this, then by God's power, we, we can actually be useful. We can be helpful. So a discerning mind is a mark of usefulness. Uh, the next one is a, a humble manner. And we see this in verses 24 and beginning of 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So you see there... Um, what is really, a, a, I think, an inescapable tension in, in gospel ministry. You see some of the words there. We are, we are called to teach each other at times, right? This is certainly true if you're in a position of leadership. But at other times, too, we're, we're teach someone, help someone know the truth. We are at times called to correct each other. Maybe a friend who's in sin, and we're, we love them, so we're going to find a way to to help them to see that they are in sin. Maybe there's someone who has a misunderstanding about some theological issue. So there's times we have, to, we have to say certain things, lead people a certain way, but the other tension is that we're to be kind to everyone. We're to be, we're to be patiently enduring evil, gentle. It's hard to be really kind to someone, but also tell them that they're wrong, right? That's like, that's the whole challenge of every human relationship. How do you do that? And yet we're called to it. It's saying right there, you need to be able to teach, correct, but, but kind to everyone. These things, the less mature we are in Christ, I think, and maybe just in life, the harder it is to see that, that these things actually can and must go together. 
when we were younger, when I was younger, right? The, the teaching part, the correcting part, that part I saw very clearly. Man, there are some people in my life that need to be corrected. And they're going to be so grateful when I do it because then they'll see the rightness and our relationship will be stronger. And man, I hurt so many people because I, I forgot the other part of it. That's not enough just to be right or see things clearly. You need to do it in a way that is actually is gentle, is kind, is patient. And in fact, this is what we see in the ministry of Jesus, right? Look at Matthew 11, uh, 29. This is how Jesus speaks about how, like, how he approaches us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Look at the words he uses to describe how his approach towards us. Gentle, lowly in heart. Now, is Jesus still the ultimate judge? Absolutely. Is Jesus still wrathful towards sin? A- absolutely. But the good news, the gospel, is that he doesn't approach us with that attitude at this moment. He approaches us with grace, with mercy, with love, because there is judgment coming. But, but notice, he, he invites us. He's so soft-hearted. Think of all the conversations he had with those who had some sense of their sin. He wasn't sharp. He wasn't impatient. Man, he was so patient with his disciples. Right? Just laboring with them for so many years. They made so many foolish mistakes. He, he never lost his temper with them. And even Paul, think of Paul. For the, the hard-headedness of Paul, the sharp tongue of Paul, look at how he describes his ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2. He's speaking to the church in Thessalonica. He's saying, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Man, think of the affection. Think of what all those words mean. He's saying that we actually really love you. We wanted the best for you. And you could see that in us. We were gentle with you, patient. These are the marks of gospel ministry. Not just that we are telling people the truth, but we're doing it in in love. And we're not going to be useful unless we can put these two things together. It's it's so easy to want to just, you know, hammer the nail home and and just just say the last thing and really try to drive the point home and make sure they get it. And very often we we wreck the whole thing, all all that we're trying to accomplish because we're, we're not allowing for them to grow as we have. Think of how, off, how long it's taken us to, to learn certain lessons. There's another uh, little phrase here, though, that I think is, is really, um, it just stood out to me. And that was where it said, um, patiently enduring evil. Uh, this, I think, is, is very difficult to live out, but really is, is essential for our ministry, for the work that God has called us to. Um, just think of all those times in your life when God has brought you into a relationship with someone and there's a hardness there. They're, um, they're angry, perhaps. Uh, maybe rightly so for a time. Maybe there's a, an unforgiveness. Maybe there's something else going on where, where they're, they're just bitter and angry and, and yet you know you're... This isn't just some acquaintance in the street that you can just walk away from. This is someone you've been, you've been called to and maybe even have some responsibility over. Maybe a parent-child relationship can be like this. In a marriage, can be like this. 
So what do you do when the other person is, I mean, the wall is up and, and the arrows are flying and yet you're, you're called to lead them. How, how do you do that? Well, it says it here, you patiently endure the evil that is being done to you. Why? Because you're looking for an opportunity to have a, a loving effect in the life of this person. I want to tell you a story of, of someone who did this just to kind of help see uh, the power of this. This is, a, this is a powerful thing to be able to do this in, in people's lives. Um, th- this is a story of a man named Charles Simeon. So uh, here's his picture. He lived in 17-something. He's very old. Uh, it's a portrait of him. That's how old. Uh, he was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, so in the UK. He was the pastor of that church for 54 years. So think about patiently enduring a whole bunch of things. He was there. Uh, but the story that stuck out uh, as, as I was uh, hearing the story told, John Piper told the story, is, um, is that for, for the first 12 years of his ministry, uh, this was the Anglican church. So he was appointed, okay, just the way it worked, appointed to this church, right? Someone up high, the uh, bishop said, you're, you're going to be the pastor of this church. Uh, but the church there did not want him. Uh, not because he was evil or, or anything like that, but because he was an evangelical and because they knew he was going to preach uh, about confessing sin and about actually turning and, and kind of, you know, really preach hard. And they didn't want that. I don't know what they wanted, but they didn't want that. So they uh, rebelled. And here's how they rebelled. They, could, they couldn't get rid of him. So what they did is um, there was a morning time slot, like we're doing now, where you'd preach. But then there's an afternoon where they would have a lecture. And at that time, people came to both, surprisingly. So they came to both. And uh, the afternoon slot was the church's responsibility to decide who would speak there. Normally, it would be the pastor at both, right? You would, you would lead both, preach twice, but uh, they wouldn't let him speak then. They, they appointed other people in the church, said, you're not allowed to speak then. And the morning time, they boycotted it. No one would show up. More than that, they had pews, and they owned their pews. They could lock them. So what they would do in the morning, they locked all of the pews so that he would come in, no one would show up, and any visitors had to sit in the aisles. They did this for 12 years. 12 years that he came every Sunday morning and preached to whoever would come in the doors in the aisles. Just think about what that would do to your heart. Right? Think of Charles. He's, he's coming here to lead them in the ways of God. He's speaking the truth of the Bible. He's trying to be faithful. And there's nothing but hard hearts. How did he do it? How did, how did he get through this? Here's one quote that he helped to explain. He said this, In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this, The servant of the Lord must not strive, which is the, the King James for quarrel. It's in our text. He read that and said, I, I feel the conviction of the spirit. I'm not, I'm not going to be quarrelsome about this. I'm not going to be combative. I'm going to patiently endure this evil in in the faith that God is at work in their hearts. And he was. 12 years later, they let him, it it changed. There was a softening and he led them for another, do the math, all those other years, right? 54 years. That's incredible, is it not, that someone would endure? But, But here's the truth that we don't often recognize. There are doors in the hearts of the people around us that are locked, they will only be opened if we are willing to, to suffer from them in relationship, in friendship, in marriage, in family. That, that there, there are times we're called, and, and let me be clear, this is not a call to endure abuse. 
Okay, this is not a call if you're in a marriage or being, you're being physically abused. or something. That's, that's not what this is talking about. In those situations, you need to come forward. Please come forward and speak with us. But there are other types of evil, right? A bitterness, a hard-heartedness, a coldness, maybe even words, right? Attack, whatever it might be from people in your life, and, and yet you're called to be there. You're called to stay you're called to be patient and, and endure. How? By trusting the fact that, look, God is at work and, and that you are not able to change our We can't. We might want to, right? That's the insistence. That's the just listen to me, and, and, but that's not effective. It's so much more effective if, if we, we behave like Jesus did, right? We, we walk down the road of suffering, go to, to whatever cross God has for us, and we suffer and we pray, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. How would you reach them? Would you change their hearts? Would you help them to see the truth? When we do this, when we're able to have a humble manner, that's what this is, not thinking of ourselves, willing to suffer, we are very useful. More useful than we even realize in the moment. There's one more thing that we're called to, one more mark of, uh, of usefulness, and that is a compassionate heart which kind of goes along with everything we're saying, but look at how he, he says it in the last uh, couple of verses. It says, we do all of this, uh, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, so there you see the goal. What is the goal? That there would be those in our lives, those that we're you know, brought into connection with, that God may grant them repentance, so, so again, it's God's sovereign power that makes this happen. But, but obviously, we are, we are the tool that God is using a lot of the time to speak the message of, of the gospel so they will repent or to show them the love of God. It, it's God who does it, but we have the opportunity to be part of it. And what's necessary for us is to have this mindset of compassion because these, these people are ensnared. We, we were ensnared. And God was compassionate with us probably from other people that showed us love, spoke truth in a loving way, journeyed with us patiently, and we saw the truth, and we were freed. And th this is the work that God has for us. So, so let me say it this way, just kind of as a, a way to think about this. What if I told you that in the next 10 years, there were going to be multiple uh, events in your life uh, where you will have the opportunity to save someone's life if you know a first aid? Like if you're trained, commercial level, whatever, first aid. Like there's going to be, in three years, a car accident that you're going to respond and you're going to be able to save someone's life. There's going to be someone has a heart attack at your work, a bike accident. And listen, it's going to happen. What would you do? What would we all do? We would get training, right? We would, we would get trained so that in those moments we would know what we'd be ready. Because why? Because we don't want someone to die. We don't want to be standing there and have someone bleeding out and us not know what to do. We want to be ready so that we can, in compassion and help, care for them. And the truth of the matter is that there will be events throughout all of our lives where there are people who are spiritually in danger. Their soul is in danger. They're dead already and they need to be brought to life. And we, we can help them if we have a heart of compassion if we can see, this is the, the challenge to be useful, to see that which is truly important. If we see it that way, their hard-heartedness, their belligerence, their, their rudeness, whatever it is, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. I have the, the discerning mind and the compassionate heart to see through that, to see, you know what, this is probably someone who's really hurt. 
Maybe someone who's been hurt. Maybe someone who's never, didn't even know the gospel. They're, they're indulging in all these things in life because they just, they don't know or they've, they're trying to dull something. There's all sorts of reasons we all know why we engage in, the, in sin and why we turn away from the Lord. But the job, the, the task that we have before us is to be helpful, to be useful. And it only is going to happen if we have compassionate hearts. If we realize that they're just like us. They're lost. That, that they need the transforming power of the gospel so that they might actually find peace, actually find hope. It's not just that they need to stop being angry, that we need to stop being angry. It's that we need to be transformed. And what a joy, what a privilege it is that, that we can be part of this, that we can be a useful to our master. So obviously the questions that we should be asking ourselves are, are we useful? Are we ready for this kind of thing? Are we, are we clean? I think that's the big one because we don't often see the connection between patterns of sin, patterns of darkness, and, and, and the things we're going to miss because we're blind or we're, we're dull spiritually. And do we have compassion? Can we, can we see, begin to see the people around us as Jesus saw them? Just think if his compassion is so great. It doesn't matter who he was talking to. Even the people who were nailing, putting nails through his hands, they were, what did he see? He saw how lost they were. I hope you see the joy of this. I hope you see the delight that can be ours as a church, right? As, as we get to be useful, right? Like Thomas the Tank Engine, I just want to be a useful engine, right? Keep coming to my mind, which is probably not helpful at all spiritually, but it just keeps coming, right? That there's this usefulness, this, what a joy it is to, to serve the purpose that God has given us. And so let me, I'm going to close with that. Close that we, God would stir in our hearts and our minds to action, to cleanse ourselves and to seek and save those around us to be part of that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray, God, that, that this would be on our hearts, that it, we wouldn't be satisfied just with being superficially helpful uh, to the people in our lives or even here at, at church, Lord. May, may we have the desire to have actually spiritual work done through us. Lord, that you would use us, dull instruments, God, that can be sharpened for your good purposes, Lord, I pray that would be the case. I pray we'd have a heart for it. I, I pray we'd have the endurance, Lord. What a, what a thing it is to be able to endure for 12 years, God. May that be true of us, that there be relationships that we're seeing. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Lord, we want for the people in our lives to see the truth of your salvation, to grow in godliness, Lord. Help us to be so cleansed that we are not part of the problem, but also that we, we can be part of the solution. Lord, that 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 our lives can be an example of your grace and your mercy. And that the truth of God, yes, will be on our lips, but, but would be so in such a gentle way, a gracious way, that it's compelling, that it's inviting. Help us, Lord. Help us to begin with ourselves and see the areas where we are not useful because we, we are not clean. Remind us that you are the one who cleans us. Jesus, you are the ones who rids us of all sin and, and makes us clean before the Father. And Lord, may we be effective and useful for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.